0: I don't know if the answer is, for Trump in 2024, be proactive. I think the answer is go out and fight for everyday people on our terms every single day. Let Republicans do whatever they're going to do. The more we prop him up and yell about him and scream about him, the more we just, for some reason, make people not like us.
1: In this episode, I spoke with Trey Nix, a longtime Democratic political campaign manager who ran Roy Cooper's campaigns for governor of North Carolina. Trey has now started a political consulting firm called Declaration Media with two partners. I like talking to campaign managers. I think they often have a realistic understanding of American politics, as well as how to put together and lead a team. On both of those counts, Trey is worth listening to. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Trey Nix of Declaration Media This episode is brought to you by
0: Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: So, Trey, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: My name is Trey Nix, and I currently am a founder and partner at a firm called Declaration Media that's new with uh, Meredith Kelly and AJ Lenar. Before that, I basically ran campaigns for better part of a decade, everything from state Senate to U.S. Senate and uh, everything in between, and spent a little bit of time at the Democratic Governor Association as well as a campaign director there. So that's kind of a brief bio.
1: Where did you grow up? So I grew
0: up in South Alabama, Montgomery, to be specific. So I grew up in a pre-Republican family. My parents are parents who didn't vote for Obama in 08, but did vote for Hillary Clinton in 16, right? So John McCain and Mitt Romney were fine with them. Trump was not. Um, pre religious family, political. My dad was a lawyer to three different governors uh, on the civil side. Two Republicans and one Democrat, Don Siegelman. My dad was Don's civil defense attorney in that matter. I wasn't very political growing up. I wanted to join the Peace Corps. So politics kind of came to me post-college,
1: really. Do you feel like the, that origin in a Republican family in Alabama— affects how you think about Democratic politics and the campaign game? Must. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What's different about having those roots?
0: Well, the first is just, like, I deeply love people that vote for Republicans, right? Like my mom and dad. Uh, Even though they vote for them less than they used to, for sure. I do worry at times that we have allowed the... Republican politicians to make us believe that many independent Republicans are just like them. And I don't find that to be true. They vote for them, but that's complicated. And most people hate politics and don't think through this like we do. I still have a lot of reverence for the fact that like we live in a society where, you know, everyday folks get to decide who represents them and their voice matters. I think one of the great sins that our party has committed at times is you know, honestly, being so DC focused and so kind of almost elite focused that we like decide that the conversations we're having up here somehow are anywhere near similar to the conversations that everyday folks are having. When I talk to my mom and dad, I mean, I I joke that my mom is is both pro-life and can get on board with Medicare for all. Figure that one out.
1: That's not intellectually impossible to understand.
0: Right. You know, when I think about the folks we need to persuade or the folks we need to turn out, um, because the other thing about Montgomery is is now it's it's a majority black city. And so I grew up in kind of this melting pot of society where you saw both the bad and the good. I really think about the people I grew up with, you know, from all walks of life and um, and still keep in touch with. And um, one of the tricks I used when I was managing campaigns, it's harder to do now. But, you know, I have a lot of interests that have nothing to do with politics. So I would like... When I ran a state center race in Southwest Virginia, I helped coach like a little league team at the same time. I always tried to find like an activity where I could like meet normal people in the area that I was working in and hear their conversations. It was always like a really helpful exercise to remember like this, A, is not as complicated as we think it is. And B, people are complicated. And so remember that when you're communicating to them growing up in, and South Alabama certainly, I think, keeps me grounded in not hating the people that don't vote for us. I love a lot of those people. And, but also knowing, like, candidly, when, they're, when they aren't going to vote for us, too. I know that, you know, like, so.
1: I mean, you made this sort of distinction, somewhat implicitly, about independent Republicans. How do you understand the Republicans that are really wedded to Trump? understand that attachment i think i can do this but i i know a lot of people who don't seem to be able to how do you square you know them being good decent american citizens good neighbors and also supporting a guy who lies all the time and has a number of character defects that are
0: and look i struggle with it myself i mean there are some days where i you know sit there and say Yeah, I'm wrong about all these people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think it's just a different lens, but yeah.
0: There are so many things that motivate people's political choice that are just different than anything else in life. While we sometimes see it as endorsing these very bad behaviors, I think they have such a low view of politics that, you know, their view is kind of, they're all bad. So I just got to figure out like the least bad, at least somebody who might do something good in my brain. You know, oftentimes that breaks down to money let's be honest, you know, a lot of times it can be seen as, you know, taxes or things like that. Sometimes it can come down to more niche issues, like choice can be one, even though, you know, that I think that's a super complicated issue when you really dive into it. Planned Parenthood and a have done a lot of pretty good research on kind of how to how to talk to different voters um, about it. And, you know, it's just so fascinating to sit down with them on on a one-on-one basis and have a conversation with them. And you're just like, God, we are not, we are not that different.
1: Happens to me on airplanes a lot.
0: But, you know, they don't trust us. And the truth is, you know, if you were to analyze our voters, they don't, we don't trust them either. So when I talk to candidates about like, how are you gonna outperform? I really do think it's just a basic question of trust. You see the numbers on the infrastructure bill. You see the numbers on the American Rescue Plan. And, And our side argues this all the time that it's popular. Okay, great. But a lot of the folks that maybe are voting for Republicans still like the idea, but there is something about us that they can't trust, whether it's like they think we'll raise their taxes too much or go too far. And I think candidates that can break that trust paradigm down and can kind of, you know, be the person they trust can can have some crossover appeal in some ways.
1: You said you didn't really get into politics till after college. What did you study in college and where?
0: So I was at Samford University in Birmingham. It's, if you say it fast, people think I went to Stanford. Uh, Is but it, I went to Samford, Samford, <laughs> S-A-M-F-O-R-D. I would Birmingham. just say it
1: fast and keep going. Yeah, that's right. No,
0: that's right. <laughs> uh, people, people look at me and smile and I just don't correct them. Uh, <laughs> so I, I went to this little Southern Baptist school, even though it wasn't very Southern, Southern Baptist when I was there. I studied international relations, which was a mixture of like kind of history, political science, minor in Spanish and thought I'd go into the Peace Corps. That's what I thought I'd do. I, I'm of that generation that when Obama ran, I was in for that. I started as a volunteer, dropped out of school, went to Dallas, Texas, where I ended up meeting my wife. But I'll never forget, I got a stipend when I got to Dallas, Texas, uh, and a cell phone during the primary for Obama. And then I went to Pennsylvania, and they put me on staff. And that was like, I'd made it.
1: And you dropped out of college to do that?
0: Yeah, I had four hours oh. left. Mom was super happy.
1: Did you finish it up ever?
0: I did. I yeah. did, yeah. I got lucky. So so the administration at Sanford was pretty conservative and the faculty was very liberal. This is a pretty super common thing in religious, small religious schools. Faculty still pretty liberal, administration conservative. That was the case at Sanford. And, uh, and I just had great professors who um, said, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You've got to go do this. And the way this will work is we'll give you an incomplete. And that technically at my college could last through the end of the year. And so then all you'll have to come back and do is like, we'll give you a few papers or projects. And we need you to complete those and turn them in for the end of the year. And we'll grade those. And that'll be how you finish school. And at my school, if you had, if you were, if you had eight hours or less left, you could still walk. So I got to walk in May, which was important to the family, and then um, finished. And so I did get my degree. And my economics professor and political science professors at the Times were the one who really pushed me to go do it. And I was pretty grateful for that. But, yeah, so so I went and did the primary, and then I went ended up in um, Colorado for the general election. And kind of the rest is history.
1: Yeah. Well, what was it about? It wasn't just Obama. It was something about the campaigning, right, that captured you.
0: I don't think I'm that different than many of the other folks who joined that campaign. And I try to remember this, by the way, now that I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'm establishment. But let's say I, am. I try to remember this because I <laughs> remember. Established. You know, I remember people thought at the beginning, this is, you know, this guy doesn't understand how Washington works. All of these kind of things that they said about Obama and said about the campaign he was an inspiring figure and literally was able to get me, a college kid who never really thought about doing politics, to go so far as to start volunteering every single day, all day, to try to get him elected. And like in record fashion, as far as time, you know, like in no time, I, honestly, I remember watching his Iowa speech in, in Washington State with my family being like, there's no way I'm not going to try to help this guy win somehow once I get home. There was something that was past policy or anything else that was important and that was inspiring, frankly. This is how much I didn't care about politics. Someone said said the name Nancy Pelosi and I had to Google her to be like in the conversation. I was not, you know, paying attention.
1: I don't know what her name recognition is, but even if people say they recognize her, most people don't really know much about the leaders of the house.
0: Certainly at that time I was, you know, like a college kid, mostly concerned about hanging out with friends, so.
1: What was your first campaign manager job? How'd you land that?
0: So I went to to Capitol Hill as an intern for a guy named Bobby Bright, who uh, people remember was like um, very, very conservative, blue dog, Democrat. I had followed my then girlfriend, now wife, to, to DC, um, and she would end up going to work in the administration. And so when I was in the office, I didn't really, candidly, I just didn't really like it. That was not me. Um, Our chief of staff at the time said, okay, like, why don't you do the campaign? I started as the finance director on the campaign and I didn't know anything about that. This is all luck. This guy uh, who's the pollster for the campaign named John Anzalone.
1: I've had him on the show. I know him. Yeah.
0: Who's like a brother to me now and sits down with me for breakfast because I, you know, they they wanted to consider me running the campaign, and there's there I never forget. There's two people that needed to sign off: Katie Nee, who was the DCCC desk at the time, and now lives in Rhode Island, I'm pretty sure, and then and John Anzalone, who was the pollster, and also just the the he was the center of gravity, strategic center of gravity, and he had breakfast with me. I like literally vividly remember the breakfast because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, and he endorsed it, and so did Katie, and those. I mean, you know, I, I owe a lot to both of them. And I got a chance to run my first race, uh, which was largely, I tell folks all the time, they're trying, thinking about managing, you know, my job just became to make sure the trains ran on time and to listen to people a lot smarter than me and to do what they said. That was really my job. I had a little bit of a leg up because Bobby was in a, representing my hometown, And, you know, we lost like 4,000 votes. It was tough in 2010. That was a tough, tough race to lose. But that was the first shot I had at managing. Um, and I pretty much never looked back until I went to the
1: DGA in twenty eighteen. What do you like about managing a race?
0: I love building the team. You know, I think I managed for as long as I did because there was some magic to building teams, to finding other folks who wanted to work on a campaign. And you know, I re- I still keep in touch with so many of the the men and women that I got to work with that that I had the privilege of hiring. Many of them are so impressive and doing such cool things now. I grew up playing sports and it felt a lot like sports to me. There was a camaraderie that was developed. There was kind of, you were going through something that a lot of other people just couldn't understand. And I think that's why you see, whether it be right on the presidential level, there's still, there's still the Get part people, right? Like you still hear about the Get part team or the Kerry team or the Obama team, Clinton team, et cetera. You know, the Wellstone team, right? Like you still hear about these folks. In the context of the boss that they ran the campaign of, you almost feel like it's like they're couched in this kind of sports terminology. But I think it's that you kind of have a shared experience that that no one else has. You kind of have a shared, uh, a friendship that kind of is based around something it's hard to break down. So I love that. And, you know, I'd be remiss to not say that like in 2016, it's a, it's a tie ball game for me, 2016, 2020 with Cooper. But just two of the best teams that I've ever gotten a chance to be a part of in my entire life. Like I miss every day hanging out with those folks.
1: I know that feeling. I I think it's similar with a startup company. Uh, When you have the intensity of trying to make something out of nothing, it's not terribly different. I think a campaign is a startup. You have with most of those people a relationship with life if you keep it. And it's, it's lovely.
0: I've never really gotten a chance to do a startup company, but I think, um, in fact, when I worked for Warner, who has obviously done many, he linked the two. He felt very much like, um, in fact, you know, he was kind of driven towards staffers who had had maybe done a startup or something. I mean, he felt like, and and the staffers that want to leave politics and go do something else, he would often recommend, would go to a startup. You'll be very comfortable there. Um, So that makes sense.
1: When you are seeking to build that kind of camaraderie, how do you go about hiring for that? What are you looking for beyond someone who has the skill set in the area that you need?
0: First, I think we get really boxy about campaigns. This person goes here. This person goes there. I always tried to break that down and draft for talent is what I would say.
1: The best available player.
0: Right. I was always a big fan of like Omar Infante, you know, great utility player. I love the utility players in baseball that, you know, were in left field one day and second base the next and pinch hitting the next. And kind of they just they were they were good all around players and they filled a need. I tried to think through people that were talented and and, and kind of draft for talent. I also would always make a list of strengths and weaknesses. So for me, I'd say, here's where I think I'm strong. Here's where I think I'm weak. And then I would hire people. That were really strong where I was weak. And I, you know, I think it's important when you're doing that to be brutally honest with yourself about what you're not good at. I did my best to try to create a kind of a feeling of family. So there are a few things I always did. I would tell people like, you know, we poll and that those polls are, you know, in traditional campaigns are sacred. You know, only so many, only certain people get to see them and all this stuff. I thought that was bullshit, man. That that was people that were obsessed with power. I said, look, I hired you. I trust you not to leak this. Sh- so I'm going to tell you what it is. And so like sometimes on our Monday meetings, we just go through the poll and we talk about it and you could be an organizer or you could be a research assistant or finance assistant. And I'd let them ask me questions. You know, I try to give them access to some of our consultants, you know, whether it be John or, you know, Mark Putnam, who did both the Cooper's races or um, or PG Greco, who, who did the mail. You know, I tried to I tried to give them access and say some of these guys are some of the best in the business. You should you should get a chance to ask them a question. And, and I think everybody appreciated that. Um, but I, th- I think it also just built a culture of family, which is like, look, we don't we don't keep anything from each other. We don't have any secrets. We're all here to work together and have fun. I tried to prioritize fun. We, we'd have like a basketball goal sometimes in the uh, in the in the office. And it drove some people nuts when we'd start a game of, you know, uh, a basketball game in like the middle of the day. But campaigns are hard and they're long. So I tried to make sure we were having a blast. And I really would try to hire not just for skill set, but also for culture. So when I would do reference checks, I would ask, like, what is it like to work with this person? We did our best to get outside of this traditional hiring structure, too, of like, they did a race. So this, you know, we have... Some great folks in in Cooper World that had never done a race before they worked on ours. And they're some of the most talented operatives, I think, in the business now. And then the final thing I'll say that I'm really proud of in Cooper World is like in 2020, we, we had five senior staff, all women, majority women of color. And four of the five um, had been deeply involved with Cooper or the state party since 2015. What I loved was watching that staff that was a finance assistant on the 2016 Cooper race, become the finance director and raised $40 million on the reelect. Someone that was an intern become the resource director in four years. That was always a very special thing to me. And that staff that did Cooper 2020 is some of the most talented staff I've ever gotten a chance to be around. And, and are doing huge things now. So, um so I'm really proud of them.
1: When you were open about sharing polling and kind of trying to bring everybody or most everybody into the fold, did you find ever that you got ideas about improving the campaign from people then who are not just in the in the small circle?
0: Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean You're totally right. I mean, the question kind of leads you to to what is an obvious answer, which is, you know, just because someone's a research assistant or finance assistant or whatever, first job, doesn't mean they're not super smart and have great ideas of their own. Facilitating a way in which those ideas can kind of come to life and be considered. Absolutely. And not just like not just in the polling, you know, TV shoots are kind of like, especially in these big campaigns, everybody thinks, oh, that's so cool. You're shooting an ad. I'd try to find out the folks in the office, A, that thought that was cool and try to get them on the shoot to see how it worked. Um, And I'd try to take a bunch of our staff and show them the scripts ahead of time, not just the consultants, and say, what do you think? And there were a lot of times when they would say, you know, I wouldn't say it that way for this reason. And I was like, God, that's so smart. I would have never thought of that you know, I think our business is so full of people. I mean, that look, there are a lot of people in this business I love, but it's a self-important business. Everyone wants to be right all the time. And it, honestly, it's a business that, that thrives on power and rumors, which I think is deplorable. But I just always tried to say that's not who I am. And that's, that's not what I believe. And let's run races that don't thrive off of that type of toxic kind of culture. And the amazing thing is that I think we won some of those races because we had 21, 22 smart people thinking about it, not just four, Um, and largely not just four white guys thinking about it, right? So some of the best ideas came from people you'd never guess if you didn't give them the opportunity.
1: I guess as a campaign manager, you have the privilege of hiring, but you also, to a certain extent, have the privilege of deciding who to work for, which job to take if you're doing well. Am I going to work for... Warner this cycle, or am I going to work for someone else? Right.
0: I think that's true for like half my career.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. As you, as you establish yourself and when you have a, a reputation that puts you in demand, you have a few wins under your belt, if you're lucky, or, or at least people know you did, you outperformed when you have that choice, what are you looking for in a candidate or in a race?
0: So I always say that one of the things I think makes a candidate great is the discipline to do the mundane. I've lost respect for a lot of candidates quickly when the only thing they want to do is the fun stuff, which is basically very rarely the things that matter. I'm not saying that people do it like with a smile on their face, like, you know, 30 hours of call time is not fun. I don't care who you ask, but there are people that will do it and there are people that won't. And the discipline to do the hard stuff. So sometimes in politics, like you have to take a political meeting where the entire meeting, someone is just going to tell you how wrong you are. And how much you're not doing things the right way. But there are people that decide, I I can't sit through a meeting like that, so I'm not doing it. And there are people that are like, if I sit through it on the back end, we're going to be friends and this is going to be fine. So I'm just going to go ahead and grin and bear it. And to me, I do now look for candidates that I think you you have a discipline to do the mundane and you you have the willingness to do the difficult. Outside of that, I just try to figure out what kind of person they are. The truth about, you know, I never worked directly for Tim Kaine, but Kaine and Cooper have a little bit of the same reputation of being salt of the earth, just tremendously good people. I think a lot about that now. Campaigns are really hard and it becomes harder to work for someone that's terrible. There are those people out there. To me, I try to think of like from just a human aspect, who do I think is is a, a tremendously good person. I will tell you, I think that matters. When you're trying to get elected in a tough place today, like voters bullshit meters as high as it's ever been. Credibility is as hard to get as it ever has been. And when you're trying to do the improbable, there's a segment of voters that can tell whether you're a good person and that can help you get over the hump. So, yeah.
1: And beyond that, what, if you get elected, you may face as an office holder, a situation where, you know, it's not in your platform, but you have to make a decision and being a good person may lead you to the right decision for the country. Or
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that's interesting about the consulting world and politics that it's hard to walk the line on. But, you know, there are decisions that elected members are making that have a tremendous impact on people's lives. And if you ask me personally, I think some of them are worth worth losing over. I also say sometimes, I'm not sure, there are some people who I tell, I don't think you can win until you're okay losing. That's really just because being fearless is probably the only way you'll win. I don't mean being reckless, and I think it's important to note the difference, (laughs) because sometimes I think our party is way more into being reckless than fearless. But at the same time, I've always respected politicians that know their district or know their state, but also know when the vote they're going to take is the right thing to do and no one's talking them out of it. You know, Pete Jean Greco has a great line that he's always said, which is, you know, if you're going to be wrong, you better be strong. And that's always my recommendation. If you're going to stand on principle, then you, you better own it and not back down. That's the only shot you got. Because voters will say, I disagree with you. You know, if they disagree with you 10 times, you're probably pressing your luck. But if you got a few things that you deeply care about and you're, you know, you're going to vote a certain way, damn the torpedoes you can survive that if you if you do it on principle
1: you managed both of the cooper races for governor
0: that's right i I did a few projects on the side the second time i managed cooper but yeah i oversaw both and
1: how did you get that originally the first one
0: so the first one i just on warner i didn't know if i wanted to do another one i just gotten married there weren't really a bunch of options Kind of within driving distance of DC, which is where we we're living at the time. I kind of went back and forth, but um, Elizabeth Pearson was the ED at the DGA at the time. I had known her for a while, and John was the pollster for Cooper, who I'd known uh, ever since I got started. And Mark Putnam, who had who had worked for worked with for um, for uh, almost a year at his shop, was the was the ad maker. And so, you know, everyone just said this guy is the best guy you could ever work for. And so I thought, oh, I'll put my hat in the ring. Uh, Morgan Jackson, who um, is still a senior advisor to Cooper calls me. We talked for like an hour and I had a blast. Warner's race. Candidly was like the first time I'd ever won and felt like I lost. Cause it was such a close race.
1: Yeah. Wasn't supposed to be, but it was a really bad year.
0: Right. I wanted an, uh, at least one more shot. So that was in the back of my brain. And, th- and oddly enough, I didn't know if i did get the Cooper job because it was one of those where when I would interviewed in the in the past for jobs, I had, like, obsessed over the interview. What did they want to hear, et cetera. For Cooper, totally the opposite. I prepared for the interview, like, rigorously. But I just decided every answer was just going to be authentically what I thought. No, pull no punches. I'm coming in here for one reason, to get to run the race I want to run. And if I get hired to do that, then then I'm all systems go. And and that's what happened.
1: What is the race that you wanted to run? Or what was the race?
0: Probably the the best answer for that is some mix of responsible and disciplined with an element of questioning the status quo at the same time, which kind of sounds weird there. I believe in campaigns, there are things you have to do. You do not have a choice. You have to raise money. There's not really an option there are you know blocking and tackling so to speak i also thought that i'd gotten into a rut of kind of not thinking creatively about how we put the structure together and the organization together not thinking enough about the culture of the of the campaign itself and how that might impact the actual vote totals so just kind of this long conversation for a different time and i just wanted uh one more shot to put a team together that could try to do something pretty difficult. It wasn't until I did Cooper that I finally had the confidence to, um, when people told me that I wasn't doing something right to not really give a shit. You know, I tell young managers all the time that the only thing that matters is whether you win or lose. So if someone is pressuring you to do something and you think it's going to cost you the race, then don't listen to them, no matter who they are. And, you know, people think, whoa, 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 wait, politics and all this, Man, I have never benefited ever in my life from listening to someone that's wrong, making them happy in the moment, but paying the price for that at the end of the day, ever. And so I think I finally, maybe in some ways, you know, because this is like quintessential to our business. Everybody's got a theory about what you can do better. It drives me crazy. I try not to, you know, people ask me what I think about this race or that race. And sometimes I'll just say, look, I'm not, I wasn't on it. I didn't do all the calls. I didn't do all the work. I can't tell you what i had done differently because really smart people probably got together and decided to do this. And I can't tell you I would have done things differently. People are like, oh, I don't you want to criticize? I mean, the problem with that is like it, it, it's so easy. It's so easy to do that. But for a guy who managed for so long, I knew, I knew how many times I had lost and, and thought really hard about every decision I made and how many people I thought were assholes that had never worked a you know, hour in their life trying to tell me what I'd done wrong. So
1: if I remember correctly, Cooper, he did better than the top of the ticket, the Democrat, and he did better than the, uh, the Senate candidate. Did he do better because of his candidate skills, his positions, his campaign? What would you put that to in the end?
0: You know, Roy Cooper's kind of a, a truly special politician. You know, it's not just the folks that you, you know, you can talk to basically everybody that's worked for him and, and you could do hours long podcast about how how special of a uh, of a guy he is. But you know, you don't normally hear this but I mean it's he's been in, in office for a long time.
1: He was attorney general for before that. 16 years, yeah.
0: yeah. And there's a lot of folks that think oh that's a man what a what a negative, you know. Yeah. I mean not for him. I mean think about the things he had done as attorney general, national mortgage settlement, taking on Medicaid fraud, had I mean he I mean there were lots of people in the state that had gotten a check thanks to Roy Cooper. And because he had spent so much of his time focused on helping people. He had built a trust with the electorate that's pretty hard to do these days. So I don't want to discount the fact that, you know, I think that it's hard to be Roy Cooper because I don't know if you can, you know, you gotta, you need to establish a 20 year, 20 25 year relationship with the state um, to be who he is today, which is kind of has a Teflon that's really hard to put on a politician. So I think, his, a lot of his success is his own. Now, no one is more disciplined than him. He is so disciplined about doing the hard things and the mundane things, and because he because he is really really smart politically. I mean, he knows what wins. He gave us total ability. Myself, John, Pete, Mark, Morgan, Kate. Who I can't not mention Kate Connolly. I mean, it is like raised, you know, at this stage, you know, probably nearly a hundred million dollars in the state of North Carolina, mostly for Roy Cooper. And so, um, and she's really, I mean, one of the most special members of the team. And so he, he trusted us and he let us build a plan and, you know, he came from the days when, you know, you, you kind of didn't spend a lot of money until you spent all your money. And, They called me million dollar trade back in 2015 because I told him I was going to spend a million dollars in the off year. And he was appalled at the time. But, you know, we needed to build a big organization that was going to be able to raise all the other money that we needed to raise and that was going to be able to communicate in a real way. And there were some things I wanted to do tactically that just were not achievable if we didn't have a lot of money. And so that's one of the things I try to be careful about when I'm talking about Cooper is, you know, There are people that are running congressional races that don't get to run the race we ran for Cooper, and they shouldn't, and they shouldn't try because we raised enough money to not have to make too many difficult decisions. Now, we did some cool things and some things that I think helped us win, particularly in 16 when he won by 10,000 votes. There's a different reason I think he won by 250 this time, which was we ran like a challenger, even though we were incumbent. We took it seriously seriously. Both times I won Cooper's race, the first thing I started with is I knew how to beat him. That's the first thing I figured out. Once I knew that, I knew how to win. We also had a lot of money, so we got to do some cool things that, you know, if you do a congressional race, should you do an EIP in the mail? Probably not. Um, do I think it made a tremendous difference for us? Yeah, I think it helped us up pick up some votes. Some of those things on media mix and stuff that we did, like our luxuries. And I get that, but you know, we also were trying to do something no whatever ever done for, nobody had ever beat an incumbent in North Carolina politics and at the governor's level. And so I felt like if we wanted to, you know, be the first person to ever defeat incumbent governor, we probably needed to do some special things financially to get that done.
1: Well, I think I could talk to you all day about campaign management, but I want to ask you about your new enterprise. Um, What's the founding story for Declaration Media?
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Uh, AJ, Meredith, and I um, have kind of known each other.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about each of the, each of them. Who are they?
0: Yeah, so um, so AJ was – I met him in 2014 when uh, he was making Mark Warner's ads. We just had a lot of fun uh, on that race, and he was at GMMB at the time. And so that's how I met AJ – and kept up with AJ over the years um, and became, you know, pretty good friends, just kind of going out to dinner, going out to drinks, keeping up, talking about the races he was doing, talking about the stuff I was doing. He lives in Greenville, South Carolina. Once I moved to Raleigh, obviously we're much closer. And I think we, we kind of bonded early on in 14 and uh, just over how we saw the world and how we want, how we, you know, kind of, Neither of us are tip, you know, particularly fans of Washington, D.C. or the kind of the inside game that that sometimes is necessary. And then I'd known Meredith a little bit because she was at the DCCC uh, as a comp director in 18 when I was um, at the DGA, and we have a ton of friends in common. And so what I really wanted on the firm side, though, was I wanted to build a firm that was similar to what I believed campaigns should be, which is people that have – unique strengths and together they're more powerful than apart. and so um you know meredith is one of the best communicators i've known in our party for a really long time and she is so good at preparing candidates she is so good at figuring out what are the tough questions going to be and helping you answer them uh you know she can see uh, around the corner and i think that's really special quality and AJ is, in my opinion, one of the best ad makers we have in the party right now. Um, he did Joe Cunningham's work um, in South Carolina, and I thought a lot of those ads were super creative and super fun and cut through. I felt like putting us all together, You know, we could build a shop that from the day you decide you want to run to your announcement day, to every day in between until the night the polls close, we could be there to help you. I think we make great ads, and that's part of the idea behind the firm. Obviously, we're an ad firm. You know, I used to have this sign that hung in Cooper's off hung in our Cooper offices that said it's the little things that matter. And I know there are tiny little decisions campaigns make every day that have a tremendous amount of impact on victory and on what goes into an ad. A lot of the things that campaigns do in the run-up to the ad process can have an impact on what you can run and what you can say, whether it's a story you can tell or a hit you can deliver. And so, you know, the goal was just to build a firm that was really able to dig in on every aspect, whether it's, you know, some clients, I, I know their budget as well as anybody because I help write it and uh, work with the manager on that. And that's kind of back from the management days. And um, some candidates are much more in the kind of, they're doing a lot of interviews and need a lot of Meredith's time, but, that, you know, we could meet those day-to-day demands that, that folks have.
1: When I talked to an executive director of the DCCC back in, I think, 1998, he was telling me about the campaign consulting world. And he said, there's a bit of a hierarchy. And he kind of described it to me. He put media consultants at the time at the top. He said, they tend to be the most articulate and they can talk the candidate into spending the money. The way they want him or her to. I don't know if that still holds true, but what I'm wondering is how do you separate yourself from the other media consultants that are skilled in that area? What do you think is different about what you're going to offer? What do you think is being done right and not done right out there?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, at first, I guess I would say, you know, I, maybe I'm not a great salesperson. Um, I think there are other good media consultants out there. I've worked with a lot of them. So I'm not, you know, I'm not here to say we're some kind of like uh the best you've ever met kind of thing. I all that salesmanship kind of drives me crazy. I do think that team fit is a really important thing. I think some candidates think about it and some candidates don't. And I think trust is an important thing for a lot of these candidates that are new. You know, one of the questions that I always have is just, you know, when you're picking your team, like in in the moment in which you're you have your most anxiety who are the people you've talked to that you want to call and get advice from or have help you solve the problem and you know so i think for myself for meredith and aj i mean obviously we've seen a lot of those problems we've helped, helped a lot of candidates solve those problems and and we've you know been on campaigns recently and i think understand a, a little bit more than than some um kind of the structures and organizations and things that they're going through on a day-to-day basis I don't know if the characterization of media consultant is totally the same today. Some of the people I know in this business that are the most vocal on calls, the smartest, and people you want on the team are definitely our male consultants or, or pollsters or digital consultants. And I think that's probably changed a little bit since 1988. There's a debate right now happening between digital and TV and all this kind of you know media mix. I would say the thing that scares me the most in that debate is certainty. I often accuse TV firms of and maybe it's trying to protect the pie, I don't know, of, you know, kind of not telling the total truth about the fact that, like, we are reaching less people today than we were 10 years ago. That's a fact. That's, in my view, indisputable. Now, on the flip side, in my mind, digital has not totally solved that problem. And I got a lot of reasons for that. Perhaps the biggest one being Game of Thrones is, like, when it was on TV, you know, on HBO, it consistently had the highest... GRP rating of anything, you know, like a five. Well, guess what you can't do on Game of Thrones, can't advertise. Part of our problem is that people can sort themselves into programming that you can't advertise on. And, but the TV folks, I think sometimes can, you know, not be honest, I think digital folks too. And so one of the things I try to just lay out is what is the power of each platform? I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about, you know? Or whether we're advertising on broadcast or cable, Hulu, YouTube, Facebook, what is the the power and what's the limitation? And how do we build a comprehensive plan? And so um you know we try to bring a bit more modern thinking to that situation.
1: It seems like when I talk to media consultants that make TV ads, they say that to varying degrees. And when I talk to digital consultants, they say, uh, much more money should go to digital. You know, you can see what's happening. The TV people still are running way more money than they should be. Why is this not one firm? Why is it two separate silos, you know, media and digital? Does that make sense anymore? I
0: mean, it's not a terrible question. Ten years into the future, I'm not sure we'll have the same distinction. I, I mean, I think there are two very practical reasons, You know, whether it's good or not, different question, but, you know, many of our digital firms also do email fundraising. And I think part of that is because, look, we we operate in a mostly commission-based world on the digital and TV side. Well, that's like make all your money in three months for a 24-month cycle. And digital, candidly, does require a much, you know, bigger kind of staff operation if you want to buy correctly and, and do those kind of things. So I think what has really happened is, you know, digital firms have kind of found their lane, way to make money, their business model. TV firms have theirs, and it's kind of hard to upset that business model right now. Like email fundraising, for example, is certainly, I think, a a really important thing, and it is its own expertise. I guess, in theory, it makes sense, but in practicality, what we're trying to do, and I think is important, is... You know, trying to find a path forward where at the end of the day, we, we need to build a winning strategy more than we need to build a strategy that is based on anyone's preconceived notion of what their, how important their product is.
1: If you were advising a campaign or a campaign manager on how to pick a media consultant and you were out of the picture, you're conflicted out, let's say. What would you suggest to them would be the, what to look for among the firms that are out there that you've worked with, that you haven't worked with? What separates the good ones from the bad ones? What would you recommend?
0: The first thing is, I, I mean, I always try to delineate between firms that would be good good for you and firms that like need your business. What I mean by that is like, I I think any firm is dangerous if like, if they don't get your business, they're in a tough spot (laughs) because, you know, that creates pretty misaligned incentives in my opinion. I guess there's probably three things that I really think are important. I think the first is kind of fit. So how well you think you and your candidate fit with each individual consultant? And then second, how well you think they fit together? A lot of these things can just be human relationships right i mean just that dynamic so one of the things that made cooper so special i think all everybody would say this is from the candidate to the consultants to the staff everywhere it felt like a family we definitely had our share of disagreements there's no doubt about that but i never felt like anybody created a plan for anything other than they thought it was the right thing for us to win and so part of that is a little bit of just building a team that you think is going to be aligned with those goals from a cultural perspective, you know, for me, like one of the things I try to tell folks is, you know, I have made these decisions, these media mix decisions with the, you know, I always say there's, I think there's two can two people that get blamed, the candidate, the manager, if you lose. Recently, I've made these decisions. I know how tough they are. I thought a lot about how you make them. You know, I'm here to help you make those decisions. And we've already had races where. I'm like, I don't know why we wouldn't just have a really robust mail plan with a digital plan that complements it. Technically, yes, you could probably afford like three quarters of a TV ad, but why would we do that? You'll lose. It's one of those things where you just, you have to measure people up. It's weird. I mean, you have to measure people up on whether they're here to help you win or they're here to make a buck. And, you know, I do think it's fair to say we have a lot of consultants that, I know the consulting world is not the most popular world, but I think we got a lot of consultants that aren't in it to win. I mean, I do. And, and I work with a lot of them. And so it's not an easy decision. And sometimes if you can build trust with people that are not, so whether it's like a pollster, mail firm, media firm, and say, you know, give me your take that sometimes can help you, you know, get to the right decision. And then, you know, I always believe in interviews. If you ever want to put people in situations and ask them to respond to them and tell them what they do. That can be a way to kind of at least see how their brain works. So that's the other thing I always try to do when I'm interviewing people is say, I say I want to know how you solve problems. You know, I want to see your brain solve a problem in front of me. And, you know, I don't, they, 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 you'd be amazed how many people don't put us in those situations candidly.
1: You have a lot of experience and your team. Your other partners have a lot of experience in politics, but not that much experience in running a business enterprise, which is a different thing. How are you doing so far in setting this up? And what are you learning from having a different kind of startup?
0: No, I think the business side is really fun. We've been blessed to have some pretty early success on the client side. So there's a a couple of things. First, patience. Things do not happen overnight. You know, when you do campaigns, maybe patience is not something you learn. (laughs) Certainly that. I think also there is a certain amount of confidence that you just have to gain. What I've tried to do on the media front when I was a manager and when I try to talk to folks who are thinking about doing their own firm is, and I try to remind myself of this, is that, you know, there are a lot of people who have tried to tell you that this is hard because they don't want you in the marketplace. And I talk to people that want to manage all the time. And they're like, but it just, I've never managed before. I'm like, yeah, before I'd managed, I'd never managed before either. And I was like, this is just a ruse for people to make themselves feel important. Like managers all the time act like it's so hard. It's not, hire good people, listen to smart people. It's not a very difficult thing to do. It's a defense mechanism. We, we go out there and we talk about the long hours we work and how hard it is and blah, 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 because we want you to think we're important that we're doing a job that is uniquely difficult. And I think it's harmful. I think we keep a lot of really smart people from entering the marketplace because we're not just like brutally honest. like, yeah, some days it's hard, some days it sucks, but also it's really fun. And you can totally do this too. And I find business to be the same way. You know, I remember when we started, the people in our business who called me and told me, man, congratulations, that's awesome. And that I'd known for a long time. I remember those folks and, you know, I want young men and women that are managing right now or at committees right now to not think that starting their own thing is impossible or is not worthy of considering because yes, there are days that are hard. There are days you screw up and there's days that you wonder if you're going to pay your mortgage, but there are also a lot of rewarding days and it's not as hard as you think and there's a lot of people that want to help you and that's the thing that we've been really blessed by is there's a lot of folks that have wanted to you know help us whether it be business advice here's how I screwed up when I started my firm don't do this um, kind of thing and so um, it's been fun we've had a blast
1: I know when I started a business I knew very little about how to run a business and worked out over time you learned I mean just like you said
0: I don't know if you I work for Warner the you know, he was kind of attracted to people that have failed because he felt like you learn more in that circumstance. You know, he had failed a couple of times before he was successful. And, you know, I never really forgot that lesson from him that, you know, I thought was really insightful. Get out there, take a chance. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. It's okay. Having worked for him and spent some time with him, I, I, I do think his kind of attitude, I kind of tried to always remember some of the things he would say around that, that, you know, I think made it less scary, made it more like, you know, um, a worthy endeavor.
1: I just want to ask you two quick, basic political questions. One is 2022 election already underway. The political science and the journalism that's informed by it suggests party in power has a tough time in midterms. And some of the ways, if you look at who's retiring, who's getting recruited is lining up not that great also and both the senate and the house are super close how do you feel about this year and what would you advise the party as a whole to do to make it as good as possible if they would listen to you
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean obviously we should approach it like like it is going to be one of the most difficult cycles we've ever been through um, and I don't think anybody should be kidding themselves about that. I, You know, I, re- I ran a congressional in 10 and a Senate race in 14. I remember all too well. You know, look, I think the Biden team is doing some things that are important, largely taking credit for wins over and over again. I think that's important. But, you know, we don't really know where this electorate is going to be by the time we go to the ballot box. And I think it's important that As our party moves forward every day, trying to fight for everyday folks, that we do our best to keep a pulse on what everyday folks want. I think this infrastructure bill is a good deal. I think it's the right thing for us to be fighting for. I think it's going to mean jobs, money in people's pockets, creating a, a stronger and better middle class. I think all of that's important. I think we can never take for granted the idea that people just get that. Like we have to go sell it every day. And I think as we emerged from the pandemic, you know, I think it's also important to understand that, you know, like if you read books about the like 1918 flu and things, like once it was over, nobody talked about that again, ever. Everyone just forgot about it. I think we're going to be like that. I think we're going to hit a point where it's over and no one wants to talk about it again. And I think we're going to have to be sensitive to that and understand where people are in that new world.
1: You mean you won't be able to say, hey, we saved you from COVID because they're on to the next thing.
0: That's right. I mean, look, I'm, I'm kind of a gov person. So like one of the things I automatically go to are people that are going to run against Republican governors in states where they, they govern during the coronavirus. And, you know, DeSantis and Kemp are obviously two of the ones that come to mind. And, you know, look, I just say it. I think if we're past this thing, I don't think you're going to be able to really stick the coronavirus to them. I just don't. And I think... You know, it's important to do your due diligence on the qualitative, not just quantitative, but the qualitative and hear what people are saying and what they want. And I think, you know, one of the things that we focused on in the Cooper world, but I think is important is like, for the most part, people are ready for what's next. And that's why I think, for example, the infrastructure bill is good. It's a what's next bill. It's a vision bill. And and I think that's what where the country is right now. And I think we cannot give up on selling it and holding Republicans accountable for, for trying to stop us from from being able to get it done.
1: You talk about things kind of fading into political history, but one area I don't think they have a short memory on is Trump, although that remains to be seen. He's you know pretty likely to run again. He's pretty likely to win the Republican nomination. Not for sure, but it could well happen. And then we'd have to deal with what's a differently consequential election. The difference between a regular Republican winning is not uh, of danger to the Republic. It's policy differences. Uh, if he wins, it's, it's a different order of magnitude problem. How do we avoid that? Are there any moves we can make as a party uh, beyond, you know, rooting for Biden to do a good job governing, what what should we be up to?
0: And it's a difficult question because obviously, I mean, you look at the electoral college, looks like we kicked the guy's ass, and then you look at vote totals and you're
1: like, uh, oh, barely snuck that one through. We beat him pretty handily in the popular vote, but the close electoral college states were too damn close. Right. And you know, candidly <laughs> I don't don't
0: know if that's going to change. I mean. I don't think so. It's a hard question to answer because I worry that trying
1: to stop Trump is the way we get him. Just giving too much attention to that guy?
0: Yeah. And like,
1: give me an example.
0: I was talking to a very close family member, let's say, and they said, God, Trump, you know, he's terrible can't stand him. I just he's horrible for the country. And I'd say I know he's the worst. And they said, "See, that's what I hate about you liberals." And <laughs> what? And so the the point is really we don't know how to talk about him very well in my opinion. Yeah.
1: And we people people will conceal their affection for him or their interest in him, you know, their fascination with what he's going to do. The, there, the show. there's this Well, there's this weird set of voters, honestly, that
0: I I think don't like him and don't want to vote for him. But when we talk about him,
1: it drives them them nuts and it drives them towards him. Yes, it does. It absolutely does. And they can see the appeal in him. They feel his appeal. And part of their brain says, yeah, but.
0: Right. And I mean, I think if you look at Biden's race, one of the things you see is how much positive they
1: did on him. And, you know, they learned from the 2016 race. I think they ran a different one and they did. They did. They did run a
0: different race. And I just here's my question always about Trump. What can you say about him? That people don't know that if they knew they wouldn't vote for him. Nothing. Nothing exists in that category. (laughs) It's all out there already or they don't believe it. So, you know, to me, obsessing over him and just going after him all the time is just like, for what? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, for something like January 6th, take it to him and hold him accountable. And I think that's appropriate. But he was great at trolling us. I mean, when he when he had social media, I mean, he knew how to push our buttons and and we didn't know how to just be like, just ignore it. And even though I think to, you know, to Biden and Biden's team credit, I think they I think they 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 did a good job of, of knowing how to to ignore it when they needed to. And so to me, I, I don't know if the answer is for Trump in 2024, be proactive. I think the answer is go out and fight for everyday people on our terms every single day. Let Republicans do whatever they're going to do. The more we prop him up and yell about him and scream about him the more we just, for some reason, make people not like us.
1: <laughs> Trey, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have, or that you'd like to answer?
0: Well, let me say one thing that's been on my brain lately, because we're, we have campaigns, and we're trying to get managers to go out and stuff. I mean, you know, managing, I love to talk about the technicalities of campaigns. I love to talk about, you know, um, the emerging things that are happening and targeting and things like that. And, even though I think we target too much and we could talk a long time about that. But what I've really, I think, kind of realized is how few people really spend cycles and cycles managing these days. And it's a little bit kind of nostalgic for me thinking like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish we had more folks. And I know that it's really hard. And, you know, one of the things I've really been trying to push candidates that have good money is to, you know, really, you know, we set a new type of pay scale in Cooper world and we pay people really well. And, um, and I thought that was important. And, and I think it's part of trying to professionalize the the staff into a way that they want to continue in that role. But, you know, I would love to see us have a resurgence of men and women that just want to manage for cycle after cycle that love it, they know how important it is that we as consultants and as a party lift up the importance of it. And then we demystify it for a bunch of folks who wonder if they can be managers. I mean,
1: is there enough training for campaign managers out there? You know, a place, a centralized place to not just to get on a campaign when they're young and and learn by doing.
0: Yeah. I, you know, there are some people that do some really good work on the the training front. I think probably the training is less prohibitive than, than a, the, the, the daunting nature. And it is daunting of, if you're going to manage a state house race or a state center race, you're going to be unemployed for three months. What the hell are you going to do? Maybe you're going to be unemployed for six months. You know, I've always thought our party should figure out how to do something about that. For the folks that are still out there doing it. I mean, I'm so impressed and so proud of them because it's, it's, uh, it's it's becoming rare and rare that you can really, you know, get folks to go manage cycle after cycle. But I can just tell you from having done it myself, the best races I ran were at the end. And we need to continue to build a pipeline uh, of folks that want to manage into their 30s. You know, it seems young, but is old for a manager. It's a really important part of the winning process.
1: I mean, we tolerate incredibly high salaries for college basketball or football coaches or professional managers of baseball teams. And quite arguably, it's more important who's running a U.S. Senate race or presidential race or governor's race. And it's hard to argue for huge salaries for anybody, maybe. But that's how you I mean, when when the option is to start up a firm and maybe make, you know, a lot of money if things go well why do you stay in the game of managing if the, if that option opens up to you?
0: Yeah, no, I think that's certainly a consideration. And, and, you know, I think we have actually at the, at the top level of gov and U S Senate world solved a little bit of the, the, the salary issue. And even with senior staff, I think one of the things we got to figure out is how to take some of our great managers from state Senate and congressional races and keep them in for another cycle and until they're there. And, um, and also need to start to make sure that we're looking for talent across the board, meaning a digital director that's had, you know, four staff work under them and is awesome, you know, ready Even though they've never managed, but ready to manage, you know, and get more, you know, kind of less linear about that situation. But um, it's not an easy problem to solve, but, but it's an important one. I think managers still play a pretty critical role in the process of winning. And so, trying to make sure some of our best and most talented end up in those spots is and to me pretty
1: important. I have a lot more to, I could ask you, but I think we've gone an hour and 20 minutes and I should let you off the hook here. So it's uh, fine.
0: I can talk about this stuff forever. I love it. And, um, and I like the human side of it the most, you know, as you can tell, like I look at, you know, I, my managing days are behind me, but there's part of it that, you know, I still get that itch to want to like hire a 25, 30 person staff and see who are the next best, operatives in our business. And, um, and that's probably one of the most, I watch like the Cooper team now on the official side, they have a lot of our, a lot of our staff there. Um, I look at the DGA, I look at, um, some of the firms, uh, out there that have Cooper staff. It's just very fun to watch what was a really tight knit group go out and, you know, win other races and do other big things. And, uh, it's probably, one of the most rewarding things, you know, that I've gotten a chance to do is be friends with a lot of those folks. And
1: I get that. Trey, it's really been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, yeah, thanks for the time. Um, I'll look for look for this uh, on, online somewhere.
1: That was Trey Nix. Trey is at declarationmediagroup.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.